Hi, welcome to Decipher Health Tech, the podcast where we explore the intersection of healthcare, business, and technology. I'm Mohammed. And I'm Hyder. And today we're really excited to be bringing you a conversation with Kathleen McKing. Uh, she's a classmate of mine at the University of Chicago. She's the co-founder and chief business officer at Flow Medical, um, a medical device startup. She's uh, lead teaching assistant for commercializing innovation, entrepreneurial finance, and private equity. She's got a background in healthcare consulting, and we've really enjoyed this conversation with her. We learned a ton, and we're very excited to bring it to you. Hi, Kathleen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really wanted to get started with kind of your journey to co-founding a health tech startup and sort of what brought you to that point. Yeah, thanks so much for having me today. So my journey was interesting. I, I knew I wanted to be involved in a startup and I really enjoyed working in healthcare and knew there's just so much opportunity for technology to make improvements for patients, for physicians and, and for costs as well. Um, so that kind of led me to a program at the University of Chicago where they match um, science, people who are doing scientific innovation with people with business knowledge. So that's how I originally got introduced to the co-founders of the startup I work with, Flow Medical. Um, and originally it was just kind of a, a shorter term engagement, kind of putting some of the foundational pieces there, but the team was a great match. I loved working with them and really saw the potential in the technology and it was very excited to be able to bring it to kind of that next stage to keep it moving forward. Um, so that's how I, I got involved in all of this. That's amazing. And so the, the role that I guess you took on, it's sort of starting through this, almost like an accelerator for them, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so you joined this team, you're bringing in some of, of the knowledge from your background. How did that role of CBO kind of develop and what what does that really entail? Yeah, yeah. So CBO or chief business officer, it's a kind of a confusing nebulous title because people are like, well, why isn't it, you know, CEO? What's the difference between a CEO and a CBO? And the way I think about it, and I think why you see it so often in early stage health tech companies is because early stage, you're still kind of in the lab in a way because you're innovating, you're experimenting. So the the business really needs to still be very science driven so that you get something that's innovative and impactful. And where the CBO comes in is let's make sure this gets out of the lab and into the market so we can actually make that impact that we want. So what I see the role of the CBO as is it's bringing that business mindset into the lab so that you're asking those really important questions up front and helping put the innovation in a business context. Um, and that's so important, one, because it gets it out of the lab because you're going to be attractive to funders. You're going to know how to speak to funders. And it also saves you some really expensive mistakes up front um, in terms of, you know, you don't want to be designing a product that is the optimal um, patient care experience. You don't want to be designing the fanciest thing. You want to be designing the thing that can get to market and make an impact so that it gets to market. Um, and you also mentioned accelerators too. There's a lot of great accelerators out there. There's also some that take a lot of equity or there are other things out there that you need to be cautious of. So having that CBO helps kind of look at the big picture of what are what is the long-term cost of these decisions um, in terms of how you get the money and how you spend the money. Um, and that really helps the venture 
be successful long-term and be successful faster long-term. So it seems like this focus on fundraising and budgeting sort of cash in cash out is is really is really where you spent your time i know you did a lot of work in the grant space did you want to talk a little bit about that process and just non-dilutive capital in general and the value of it yeah non-dilutive capital is great Uh, so um that's really one of the first things i did with the team was they had applied to an sbir phase one it was originally denied because there wasn't enough business there so um working with the team and i didn't do too much for that SBIR phase one, just kind of brought that little bit of business perspective in order to get the grant approved and get that funded. Um, So non-dilutive funding, SBIR phase one was absolutely critical, us getting that, um, a mix of that, plus some lab research funds to really build that very basic proof of concept that showed investors that we you know, knew what we were doing, we could do this, and that this you know, could be real. It let us validate those riskiest science you know, the, the, the areas where we were kind of pushing things to the edge, we validated we could do it. Um, so that, sorry, that like, uh, that non-dilutive capital let us eventually get that funding from investors because we proved we could do it. Yeah, so for those that aren't familiar, SBIR is a small business innovation research grant it's through the Small Business Administration. I believe it's just federal agencies that fund it. Right. So I think the big one in healthcare is usually like NIH, NSF. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many options out there. That's why I love healthcare innovation because, you know, SBIR is one option, but you have all of these foundations too that do grants to help prove out the technology or prove out the concept. There's so many grants and opportunities out there to get that non-dilutive capital that can really move things forward. Um, Accelerators, I think, are one to be cautious of because some of them offer non-dilutive capital. Others offer um, highly dilutive capital. So uh, there are great options. There's so many out there when you know how to evaluate what it is they're taking out of what they're giving you. I think you brought up an interesting point, which was the the balance of making a product that's commercially viable versus like making the perfect product or the you know the perfect patient experience, and um, physicians speaking as one, we're pretty much perfectionists. That's kind of <laughs> like where most of our job lies. So that's a really hard sell if you've got a physician in a room who's it's their baby and you're like, uh, you know, you could make it perfect or you could sell it. So how, how's that been working with, you know, physician founders who are, I'm assuming you, you, you're getting what I'm saying. You've probably experienced that. Yeah, so, much yeah, no, I feel like, so how's that experience yeah. been? Yeah. I feel like you were listening into some of our conversations. Um, <laughs> so I would say how it's been is so from the business mindset, you know, we are always thinking about, the cost of goods and we're thinking about the future, you know, how much is it going to take when we're making a thousand of these? So when we're talking about making the product and adding, you know, $5 here, $50 there, it's understanding how those add up and impact your profits long-term. And also, you know, where's that number we need to be? So 
what's, what I found to be really valuable in having those conversations with physicians is showing them the numbers, showing them the impact, because ultimately we all want the same thing. We want this to get to market and we want people to benefit from this innovation. So it's putting all the numbers in the spreadsheet, which are kind of like the crystal ball of, you know, what is this going to be worth in the future and how do we get there? So it's putting the numbers there and being able to show it to them in a way so that they can see how it builds up and showing them, you know, if we change these numbers, then we get this margin in five years, 10 years, and that's what's going to make us attractive to investors. And it's only at that point that we can actually get people to give us the money to make this possible for patients. So it's, it's just giving them the information and putting it in a digestible, easy to understand way. Just like on any team, you know, ever, anyone, everyone wants to be part of the decision. They want to feel empowered to make the decision and they can potentially even offer an alternate solution. So, oh, I get it. We need to, you know, make this $50 cheaper to make. This one thing I've been talking about is really critical, but we can actually get rid of this other thing instead. That's just a nice to have. It doesn't really matter. So it's putting it in a way where it can be a collaborative discussion. I think there's a there's a piece there that's like you're you're looking at the business side of it and understanding that as an early stage company, this whole concept is on a knife edge. Like this is an all or nothing thing. Yeah. If we get it wrong early we're not going to sell any of these. Like no one is going to benefit from this device at all. So there's almost this idea of the patient benefit maximizing route and almost like the benevolent capitalist, right? The best way to help everyone is to make us more money. But like at the end of the day, if the business isn't viable, no patients will ultimately be helped because you'll never make it to market. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think what's interesting about the device industry that's why I was kind of getting it a little bit earlier is um, that knife edge is really long. I think if you're in like the digital health space or you're making an app or a software solution or something, yeah, there's like a period of uncertainty, but with that regulatory environment in the device space, that knife edge can be forever. And if you're going like, you know, five, 10 K route and you don't get that, that could tank your company. You could have the best idea in the world. You just don't have, you know, $200 million to go through that process. Um, so how is it? aren't familiar, Mo, if you could just talk about 510K just very briefly. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a like device, right? So it's pretty much establishing that your device is significantly similar to a previously approved device. So you don't have to go through the regulatory process from like step one to the end. You can kind of piggyback on top of a prior regulated device. Yeah. Um, so how has that been as a as a business founder in like it's a fairly regulated and technical space like the device space scares me as a physician because I, I talk to people that are you know making device startups or I have a couple you know friends in established device companies and it terrifies me right like the amount of risk that goes into that so how does uh, how is it being a business founder in that space? It, it is terrifying, but what you learn is there are so many experts and so many people to help you along the way. It's not, you know, something where you do all the work and then you submit for 510K and see what happens. Um, there's a lot of people who have done it before. There are a lot of consultants in the space. So we have our 
team at Flow Medical. And then we have so many people that support us on the consulting side. We work with kind of two regulatory consultants, one from the engineering firm. So regulatory and the engineering are really working hand in hand there. And then another just regulatory consultant who, you know, this is all all she does. Um, So working with both of them, we've come up with a more de-risked path. So before you even get to 510K, there's another uh, path called 513G, where you can kind of validate with the FDA that you're on the same page about where you're going. So you take those steps, you talk to experts who have been there, and you understand where your risk points are. So you understand what your options are if you do get turned down for that 510k and kind of have some sort of exit salvage strategy there where you can pivot and um hopefully still get somewhere with it but but like you're saying that knife edge in devices is pretty scary and that's why that non-dilutive capital is so important because otherwise no one's going to give you the money to prove this out to try this without that. And that's why programs like SBIR are so important and so impactful. I guess one of the other questions I have is how how do you make the decision or I guess what factored into the decision to take this to market as opposed to pursuing like a licensing strategy or something else, um, working with, you know, this partner that already has established distribution channels or manufacturing channels, because I think um, in the device space, that's usually the bigger issue after the regulatory approval is now getting into the distribution channel and having a training team and ops and all that. Yeah, and that, that is a decision we had to make. So we did have a company who wanted to license from us, but it's probably, I don't know, maybe like arrogance and optimism on our side that we felt we were in a place where we could do it. And it felt riskier to license it to them because, you know, priorities of a corporation change all of the time. And we really believed in the innovation. We wanted to see it to get to market and and see it get to market in a specific way. Um, So licensing it to them and entirely giving up that control felt like we were, it it felt riskier. Um, And then on the other side, for us getting to market, I think we broke it down into the smaller stages, like identifying those value, um, value add inflection points and understanding when your product becomes attractive to different people. So for us, it wasn't, you know, a black or white, either we license and have nothing to do with this or we sell to, you know, every hospital in America, we identified those points along the way. So if we can get this to 510K approval, that's a significant value inflection point. It's very de-risked and a lot more um, established med device companies become interested in acquiring it. So we kind of have those stages along the way of um, biggest one, 510K approval, then, you know, a small first in human um, trial, you know, showing the impact impact of the device and that, you know, it really does what we say it will do. And then that becomes much more valuable to an even bigger set of acquirers there. Um, so it's it's understanding those points along the way and what the trade-offs are. It, it almost seems like there's an aspect of it is the further along you can justify as a team to keep pushing it forward almost before taking the exit ramp, it seems like, before handing off any of the control the more value you're creating along the way because you're sort of proving out different aspects of it. And, you know, in a perfect world, maybe you get this thing 
fully to market at scale. And then it's like, well, we've proven this so, so much, so thoroughly that it's operating as a standalone business and we really don't need that partnership. Of course, like you said, there's a lot of inflection points along the way that I think that idea of reevaluation is, is a really good point. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious about digging into kind of the role of modeling and how that's shaped your your experience at the company, your ability to communicate to your co-founders. Like, how do you think about modeling and has that changed through this experience? Has it brought value? And, you know, a lot of people say putting numbers into spreadsheets is just making up numbers. Uh, you and I help teach a class that's all about doing that. So I wanted to dig into that a little bit. I've been shocked how accurate the model is like throughout the project. So we made a really in-depth model about a year ago and it was some just putting numbers in a spreadsheet, you know, looking at what competitors are selling for, doing a lot of analysis on what is their growth. And the more information we get, the more it validates our projections there. So it is very important to put the numbers in a spreadsheet because the alternative is just completely guessing. So it gives you, it, it grounds the innovation in reality and it helps you think about important decisions. So if you look at the model and say, well, it's not a hundred percent right. It doesn't tell me exactly how much money I'm going to make or how much I need to spend. That's not what the model is meant to do. It's meant to be a decision-making tool to guide, and it is very, very valuable in that. Um, but just like anything, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out. So it's about the person making the model, and are you taking the time to really do that research? You know, talking to people is so important. Talking to others in the industry, getting kind of their inside knowledge, sharing your model with others who can give you feedback and help you tweak it to make it more accurate is really important. So it's going to be valuable if you spend the time on it to get good comparisons and really think about what your growth path looks like. Yeah. Was that one of the, the Medtronic, you know, R and D facilities not too long ago. And it's interesting how that's like, you know, publicly traded, one of the biggest device companies in the, in the country or probably in the world. And they're, um, they do the exact same thing, right? So when they're internally developing a new product, like there's so much that goes into before they even get to the go, no go, like we're going to build a prototype step. Um, because once they commit to that, it's like, I forgot the numbers we were talking about it, but it's like X millions of dollars just to get from like prototype to like a first in man trial and then to FDA approvals, like exponentially larger amount of money. So there's like an insane amount of modeling that's being done, even at the, the larger, more established company. Uh, yeah. space. So it's very important, I think, for people to, to And I that. think it helps you understand the value in spending money up front, too, which can be really hard when you're in a very cash-constrained environment. But for us, we have to make a lot of decisions on, do we build it ourselves from scratch, or do we buy the buy the piece, buy the software, whatever it is, from someone else? And so up front, it's like, wow, we can save, you know, $20,000, let's say, if we just buy this from someone else. But when you put that in the model and see what, you know, buying the part with their markup does, then when you're doing this at scale and have to do that for years, you see that's a 
it's very valuable to spend the money now um, or spend the money now doing multiple iterations of something. So trying two things at once when you know you're only going to go with one of them because it's going to save you so much time and get you to market faster or get you to that next milestone that releases funding from the investor. So that's another really important part of the model is making you understand and feel good about spending the money now when it may seem risky to to spend any dollar of that capital you have. I think that's a that's a really interesting point. And it almost goes into budgeting and operating a very early stage business that, you know, at this point has no revenues, but it's so, so critical that any resources that you do have, both time and money, are spent on the exact right thing. And I'm wondering if, could you imagine a world without this financial model? How difficult would it be to talk to your co-founders about a specific decision? Like, is it a central piece of it that you feel because we have this thing that's laid out and easy to look at and easy to say, hey, look, here's X and here's Y. And this is why we need to pick one of these two things. Like, can you imagine a world without it? No, I cannot imagine a world without the model or without the burn chart. So the model for saying this is where we need to go and this is how people will look at us when when we're trying to get money from them and then the burn chart saying so the model for our long-term decisions and then our burn chart for our short-term decisions to say why we need to do things right now and things are urgent because you know when you see those numbers turn red and run out of money on the spreadsheet it, it definitely incentivizes and makes everyone on the same page with what we need to be doing now so i'm going to ask a uh a question from my my limited limited finance background and it's something i know the answer to but i just realized a couple of months ago that a lot of people in the medical space don't i was at a um, a demo day pitch day and there was someone with a medical device surgical robot more or less that had raised i think over 30 million dollars and one of the judges asked a question about what's your burn chart look like and they asked what is a burn chart on stage so what is a burn chart for the for the less uh, for the physician audience yeah i mean a burn chart is almost like your own personal budget if you are in a situation when you only have money going out um basically it says you know this is how much we are spending every month and project to spend so it's a projection of how much money you're going to spend versus how much money you have or if you expect to get infusion of capital at certain points. So if you have milestones where they're being paid out um, and it tells you how long you can survive for. So uh, it shows as your money continues to go down, um, this is how many months you have left as a startup. So those months can make a big difference because if you can't, let's say, stretch your capital those extra couple of months to get to that FDA submission, you're done. Uh, you know, no one is going to, you're, un, if, if you say what is a, a burn chart when you're running out of money or when you've run out of money, people are less likely to then give you that money you need to um, stretch over those, those next couple of months. Yeah. So it's that, that downward sloping line that you can't let yeah. hit zero uh, before you get to some, 
something where it makes sense to go raise or to, you know, you have a grant milestone or something that increases the value. I think it's really important question, Muhammad. Thank you for asking it because it's, it's not obvious. I think to a lot of people, how important that is when you're talking about a strategic decision, because the slope of that line changes, right? If we bring in one more person, maybe we can develop this faster, but it affects the burn rate. And, you know, from a, from an early stage company and, you know, a medical device company of only a few employees, what are the biggest categories that you see make a big difference in that slope? Yeah. So for us, um, a big one that we have a little bit of control over that's also a big trade-off is when we're buying materials. So materials are very expensive and we're still feeling the effects of supply chain. So we want to buy as much material as early as possible with that trade-off of, you know, we don't want to have a bunch of money tied up in materials and also what if we pivot so we're still you know experimenting let's say with this one type of material we want to have enough of it but not too much where we put ourselves in a bad spot um a huge one is uh labor for our engineering firm that one's pretty constant um but legal expenses is actually where we see the spike and we need to uh, project out. So we're just wrapping up some licensing pieces from the university. We have, you know, negotiations with various vendors that we need to bring in our legal counsel on. So that's the item that we, um, it seems to, to spike up month to month. Is that something that's fairly predictable or, I mean, it seems like a big expense that's not predictable is the scariest thing ever. Is that something that you can kind of say, we, we know approximately what the scope is going to be. Yeah. It's, we had a couple of things that we predicted. So like we knew there were going to be legal expenses with licensing. We knew that was going to be a cost, but then we had some negotiations where we didn't expect, um, to involve legal quite as much in those negotiations. So it's kind of that added cost. You know, it wasn't a huge impact on the burn chart, but it informed us where, okay, let's just put that that number in there consistently month to month because we're always going to be needing legal more than we think. Yeah, I think uh, the tech transfer office situations pretty interesting. A lot of um, physician founders that I know, especially in the device space, their strategy is, I'm not going to tell my institution until I'm ready to go. And in my experience, I've seen that's probably always been the wrong decision. Usually the earlier you get them involved, the smoother things tend to go. And um, it also offloads a lot of the initial patent costs off the the one founder or the two founders. and they, they usually, I think, try to be fairly helpful for the most part. Uh, but yeah, that's always been an interesting experience. Um, so one question I had, I guess, is the, so you, you ended up joining your company through kind of this program through the university where they paired you guys up. Um, how was uh, the process of like, demonstrating value in a way, I guess, because it's kind of like, in my experience, talking to a lot of physician founders, whenever you tell them like, hey, maybe you should bring in someone with a business background or that understands like the actual commercial side of the space, they're like, oh, well, we don't need them. And I'm like, "Uh, 
you don't know what a burn chart is. You probably do need them. Um, so, so how was that process? Yeah, that process, it, it was difficult at first just because no one knows really what goes into, let's say, making that burn chart. They don't know what goes into putting, let's say, the PowerPoint or the spreadsheet together that communicates the information. But over time, they like you kind of show the value because they start asking the questions, they realize they need the information. Um, so I think where I was able to show my value early on upfront is kind of understanding positioning and customers and what's going to matter in the market. And so it's giving them those like aha moments of oh yeah, we know the science and the technology really well and we know our customers, but I never thought of saying it this way. So I think as the business person where you can show value to position co-founders is first of all, just listening to them. Like they know a lot. They, they know really everything about this innovation um, in the beginning. So listening to them, asking questions and then showing them what they don't know um, and it, it's all going to depend on the team. So I don't think you could ever convince a group of physician founders who had no interest in talking to business people who, are, who thought they could do it all on their own to see the value. But I, I find most physicians, you know, are very collaborative. They're people who want to learn, who work in a team environment. So once you come in and you demonstrate the things you can do um, and how that benefits their business and gets their innovation moving forward, it's really helpful. Yeah, I think for most physicians, when you say business person, their only exposure is hospital administration or like someone on the insurance side, which is generally I don't know, for most physicians, a fairly like antagonistic relationship. So oh, I thought you were going to say like, super positive. I thought you were going to uh, say super positive. <laughs> Sometimes they are. But yeah, I think a lot of times it's just convincing them that, no, this is not a hospital administrator. This is like something else. Yeah. And that's such a good point that business is such a broad term and everyone, I think, thinks they know what business is, but really doesn't understand what it is. So, yeah, that's a great point that it's really showing them what business means to their innovation and what they need there that that they don't even know. It's like you can never ask for you never know what you don't know. You can never ask for those things. So it's being that business person who just comes and says, okay, here are all the things we're going to do and look how much farther you can move because we have those things. One of the biggest, I think one of the biggest things um, that you can bring in that type of scenario, and we touched on the idea of holding on to equity in the early stages through non-dilutive capital and trying to be very cognizant of how you spend those early funds I did want to start talking a little bit about raising institutional capital. So sort of your first round of equity grants, raising money either from VCs or strategics and how you thought about positioning the company to do that when you knew that we're kind of in the spot where this is the right thing to start thinking about. Was it just like the burn charts going to zero and we absolutely have to? Or was there more like obviously there was more to it? Yeah, we have a strategic investor that we're really excited about. They're a great partner. Like they 
they really believe in what we're doing. And our physician, one of our physician co-founders had, you know, a fantastic relationship with them. Um, it, it was a really tough decision, though, because your interests are kind of at odds with the strategic in some ways. So they want to invest in you because they want to buy you eventually. Likely, that's the dream. Um, you know, they want to buy you which means they're going to want to get you at as cheap a cost as possible. Whereas with an institutional investor, they want you to end up being having a a much higher exit price in the end. So that long-term alignment with the strategic is a little bit tougher, um, but short-term it's much easier to be aligned with the strategic and have the strategic as the investor than the institutional partner because their strategic kind of understands, um, you know, like you were saying, the upfront risks, why things take a long time. They're able to provide more than just money. Um, they're able to provide advice and, and really be that partner. So for us, it you know, it, it's like you said, we needed money. You know, if we could do this with complete non-dilutive capital, yes, that, that would be choice number one. Um, but then being able to have a great strategic partner who was excited to work with us, wants us to go the same place and get that money to really move this forward was such a value add. Um, and then there are ways we can structure future equity and you know attract future investors so that that strategic isn't positioned in a place where they are, you know, let's say the sole decision maker. So we can optimize our, our exit value in the end and have options besides just going to the strategic. Um, and kind of building on that when you're when we were deciding, you know, who is going to be our investor, it was really about how we structured that investment deal. And that's where not just the chief business officer, but but the lawyer and some other folks are really important to structure that deal in a way that understands how this is going to play out in five years and really, you know, makes sure everyone is getting a fair deal and getting out of it what they want. You no, that's, a, the- that's a really great point. And so, sorry, Mohammed, I, I just wanted to dig into that a little bit more, this idea of getting into the specifics of the terms. And in a traditional investment, you know, an early stage investor might have pro rata rights, the right to keep their equity stake in future rounds. Obviously, your early stage investors influence sort of the vibe that later stage investors have about the company. How did you... I guess, of course, the lawyers were involved in making sure there wasn't any terms in this investment that, you know, would mean that your first stage investor would have too much control. But how did you think about balancing sort of the near term benefits versus potentially any long term concerns about future fundraising? Because I'm assuming you are planning to raise money in the future. Yeah, that was probably the hardest part, especially with the strategic, because the strategic wasn't really an experienced investor. So the terms they were originally putting forward were way too much control. Um, So the so that was one thing. And then also having a relationship with them when we're thinking about the long term, there was a lot of like, well, don't you trust us on both sides, you know, don't you trust us to do the right thing? So what we did was we really looked at it as, you know, let's imagine worst case scenario from both sides, you know, we're, we're only coming, we're only relying on these terms in the event that we don't want to work together anymore. Um, so we looked at it as, 
you know, when we're in this position, what's going to be fair to all of us? What are the financial benefits everyone is getting out of this? So beyond control, you know, if they're in a position where they'd want to buy this in the future, even if they don't have all the control, if someone else is buying it for a substantial amount of money, they're still going to make a lot of money off of that. So um, putting it really in just the context of this is an investment. The purpose of this investment is to make money. Um, so how is it we structure the terms that covers their risk with that money, but also makes that the end goal for everyone. And it is, it was very tough. It was a lot of conversations. Yeah, on the strategic side, the, the interesting thing is there's this, uh, at least from like my side of the window, there's this been, there's been this shift over the last few years, uh, or last decade or so. Um, there's a lot of medical device companies that would never acquire anything, right? They were just like, everything we build is in-house, it's going to come from us, and we're going to take it, and we're not going to grow by acquisition. And then there's other shops that where we grow 100% by acquisition. We don't make anything in-house, we just acquire, and we every product line in their portfolios has been acquisition. And I think there's now most of the bigger players... Um, at least like in my in my space that's like Medtronic, Boston, Cook are big players. Um, they've kind of come to this hybrid where they're like, we'll acquire some stuff, we'll invest early in some stuff, and their comfort in investing kind of varies a lot. So I know like guys do a lot of investing early. They do they do grants, they do convertible debts, they do a lot of really weird structures for those their early exposure to product that may fit their portfolio later down the road whereas other companies i think are kind of what you described they just haven't really been in that space long enough to mature out their own like venture arm so to speak did you find having a strategic on your cap table was a benefit when it went to kind of soliciting other investors or trying to bring on other investors into the round it's a benefit in that it shows, you know, someone who knows what they're talking about finds it's really interesting. So it's a benefit in that it validates there's there's probably a potential exit here. You know, the people who know think this is a good idea. It is a big red flag to institutional investors, though, when it comes to the control piece. There are, you know, very specific questions every single investor asks in terms of, you know, right of first refusal. That is their first question. They want to make sure that if the, the institutions want to make sure that if they're putting their money in, it's not basically just funding the project for this institutional investor to then be able to take for themselves in the end. They want to make sure that it's going to be a competitive buying process once this is at that point where it you know is a fully developed product. Yeah, I think the one thing I'll mention to the physician founders is it's like really easy for physicians to underestimate how much control some of these people will ask for. Um, Cause I've seen people be offered like $5,000 for like right of first refusal, right? It'll be like, Oh, we'll give you like $5,000 or $10,000 to file your patent or whatever. And um, yeah, we get right of first refusal and do it's not worth it. Like put it on a credit card. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's a concerning that's a concerning environment where you may have a lot of startups that don't necessarily that haven't raised before. They've not been in the position. 
first time founders raising money from strategics who are also not very experienced at doing it. And so now on both sides of the table, there's not a good understanding of what the norms are and why those norms might exist. Um, and you could end up in some really tricky situations. And ultimately, like we, we mentioned before, these decisions that are made in the early stage, the way that your cap table is structured from the outset is hugely important, ultimately, not just to like how much money you might make in the great scenario that the company exits, but whether or not the company makes it. Because if you get to a point where you need to raise and there's red flags that cause it to take longer than expected, the company goes under like before you're able to do it. So I think that's a really, really important point that like having someone around that's done it before or that's experienced with it on either side and understands what those norms are is so, so important. And that was another benefit of the chief business role is when we're doing those negotiations about what that investment would look like, we were in that interesting scenario where kind of neither side had done it before. So some of the terms the investor proposed, you would just never see in a a typical investment. You know, they wanted budget approval over $50,000. They wanted a board seat for their investment. And, you know, early stage, the amount they were investing, it seemed like a, mo- a lot of money and could get us somewhere really important. But, you know, having a board seat is huge long term. That's a, a big control piece. Um, and then budgetary approval is just something you would never see. So as, you know, chief business officer, I was able to say, like, OK, what are they really looking for with this board seat? How can we put that in terms that will be, you know, palatable to investors and make sense for us. What they're really looking for is making sure we don't go out and blow all this money on something that's not product related. So it was, let's put in some milestones so that we only get the funding when we are meeting these milestones, showing the value in the product. So it's ultimately better for them because it shows we're making the progress without them having to have direct control. So it's kind of that mindset of understanding what everyone wants and being able to propose things of how to get there. Lawyers can help you with that too, but um, lawyers are a whole lot more expensive. So it's good to have that person who's really involved in every single conversation and a little bit um, more of a partner than than kind of a lawyer can come off being to the other side. How did you guys, uh, how did you guys find a, a strategic partner who's kind of values and mission aligned with your own. So I know there's a lot of companies in the space, mature companies who are fine with just repainting the mousetrap every year and selling it. And there's much fewer companies that are like, we actually want to build a better mousetrap, right? Um, and kind of go from scratch. So how was that yeah. experience for you guys? So for us, we found the strategic because our position, one of our position co-founders just has really, really great relationships in the space. So he's, you know, a thought leader. He's always out there talking to people and it just is someone people trust. And he, you know, was always talking about this. So that's how he had a good relationship with someone to help them kind of understand the mousetrap. Um, and for this strategic investor, it was a space they wanted to get in. So they have other products that are similar, but not in the exact space. So it was a great opportunity for them to kind of get involved at very low risk, as opposed to, you know, the cost of spinning up a whole team to do this and doing that, um, Um, product development over several years. So it was a good alignment in that those personal relationships were already there and it was a space that they wanted to get into. 
I wanted to I wanted to close with a little bit of general wisdom from you, Kathleen. If you could give advice to physician founders on one side and then to maybe non-physicians who are either in the space or interested in joining the space, what would those two pieces of advice be? Yeah, I mean, I think to both sides, it's there's a lot that you don't know um, and that, you know, entrepreneurship is a team sport and you will always go farther together. So the more you can bring in a you want to keep the team small because small will get things done faster, but a team that really has complementary skill sets. And I see it even within our physician co-founders. So with the three of us, the two physician co-founders have very different skills too. Like one is really out there socializing the, the product more, like getting more of those industry connections. The other is really involved in the, the technical part of the product, making sure what we're developing day to day is moving forward. And then myself with the the business skill set. So within the team, you want to make sure you have complementary skill sets where everyone enjoys the work that they're doing and is excited to do it. Um, And I would say, don't get bogged down in the day to day. Remember, this is a very long term goal, long term endeavor. So celebrate the wins as you get them, because as soon as you get a win, you still have another challenge you're working with. So take the time to celebrate those successes along the way, because there's always going to be something bigger and more exciting you're working towards. With that, thank you so much, Kathleen. Uh, We really enjoyed chatting with you. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was great talking with you guys. Well, that was an awesome conversation. Learned learned a ton. Mind blown. She was, yeah. I mean, Kathleen is Kathleen is a force, and I think the way that she worked through, I, I think being in a really difficult position. Uh, I mean, I would personally feel that way as the non-physician co-founder on a team of three co-founders. Really being able to demonstrate that value to get to that point of being brought in as a co-founder, super super impressive. Um, really enjoyed chatting with her. Um, I wanted to, to start off with some learnings and actually, Mahama, did you want to, did you want to kick off with those? Yeah. So I think the, one of the kind of the earlier points she made and one that she reiterated throughout the conversation that I found fairly valuable. And I think a lot of, um, physicians should find it valuable is the, that whole concept of the unknown unknowns, right? Uh, having a medical background gives you um appreciation for that i think um because we learned that through the process of medical education and medical training is until you learn something you don't realize how much more there is to learn um, and you don't realize what you don't know and because we don't have that business training or background oftentimes we don't realize what the unknown unknowns are on the business side so it's not even that we just you know a lot of us don't have the basics but it's that you don't know what the even more advanced questions you should be asking are. And that's where some of the value of having a business-minded co-founder can, can be. Uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about was the concept of building a referenceable model. And why is it important to put a bunch of numbers in a spreadsheet? It's not necessarily to try and predict the future, but in a way, 
it's a strategic tool that can help you make decisions and choose between choice A and choice B in a way that is defensible rather than something that you're kind of making up on the spot. Um, so I thought Kathleen talking about that was was really great. Yeah, no, I definitely think the the value of the model gets underestimated by a lot of startup founders or kind of earlier stage found ups, founders. Um, and when you realize the inner mechanics of a lot of more mature companies, they're modeling everything. Like, And um, yeah, so my, my third point, my last point um, is uh, the value of doing diligence when you're seeking external funding sources um, for your company, because there is uh, there are a lot of non-dilutive sources out there. We talked about SBIR grants briefly. And, you know, last week we talked about, you know, Avatar XPRIZE with Donish. So there there are grants, there are other non-dilutive sources, which you typically do not come at a large equity cost uh, or no equity cost, right? That's by definition. Um, and then when it comes to accelerators, I think Kathleen kind of reiterated a similar point to what we were discussing last week in that, there are accelerators that will take a lot of equity for not a lot of value. So it's very important to make sure that if you're going to go through an accelerator program, it's going to provide you with the desired value that you're looking for. Um, and then just uh, the possibility, especially when you're negotiating with strategics that um, you can be in a situation where their long-term financial goals for the company don't necessarily align with yours. So there's ways to renegotiate these deals to kind of, renegotiate these deals to align the incentives between the parties involved. Yeah. I mean, that's super interesting. And I love the way that Kathleen described the way that she solved that problem actually ended up being better for both the investor and the founder where they didn't need to give up the control, but they were able to come to a term that provided the strategic investor what they actually wanted rather than what they had put into, uh, into the original term sheet. So I thought that was excellent. Thanks for listening to this week's episode or this other week's episode of Decipher Health Tech. Um, our website is decipherhealthtech.com. All our links to our social media are there. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Um, and yeah, you can reach out to us with any feedback or comments through any of our social media platforms. And we'll see you guys in another two weeks. See you next time.